Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Bryophytes, chlorpyrifos, and the protest voices are but three images in one poem by Brenda Hillman early on in her new book, In a Few Minutes Before Later, published by Wesleyan University Press. The LA Review of Books said the new book features a determinedly expansive poetry that includes prose, photographs, diagrams, pedigree charts, and all sorts of typographical expressionism. She draws on influences including Henri Bergson, Muriel Rukeyser, Fred Moten, and Lorene Niedeker to create an idiosyncratic gesture that's ecological, activist, playful, and vulnerable. There is no poet like her writing today and possibly forever. And she's our Zoom guest today to talk about in a few minutes before later. Brenda, welcome. Thank you so much, Paul. And hi to your listeners and readers. And hi to Bob. Um, hi to Bhakti. Before we get into the new, <laughs> before we talk about the new book, I have a question that I may have asked you before, but I don't remember. When did you give yourself permission to be strange? <laughs> when I was nine. I, I think it's, uh, you know, a survival technique that maybe, not sure how much it, I created it and how much I gathered from the times that whatever was, remember, uh, you know, Jim Morrison, people are strange, that, that sort of moment in the, in the tent in 1968 with all of the stoned hippies uh <laughs> but um i i think it had happened to me long before that that the sense of estrangement and strangeness of reality was not a bad thing it was actually a good thing nor was it a sort of distancing device like brecht might say you know with alienation theory and so on it was more uh that looking at things a slant or with an odd angle might actually be a good tool. And you've doubled down on it since. <laughs> I have, I have. And and furthermore, I feel committed to telling emerging people and young people that their realities are probably much stranger than they, they think. Uh, but, but all kidding aside, I think there was a way in which in between sixth and seventh grade, I've noticed in the some of the young people that I've talked to, children are not worried at all about saying or doing odd things when they're toddlers or through second grade or third grade. And then as we inch towards sixth grade and conformity comes in, and then middle school is death to strangeness you know you just want to be you want to fit in so yeah there's an explosion of commas and other punctuation in the new book Forrest Gander calls it typographical expression do you remember the moment where you just started putting in more than one comma or (laughs) ampersand or at sign and, and what inspired that uh I definitely um in the late 80s, when I had found myself in the sort of territory of 
Bay Area and West Coast experimental writing that seemed more natural to the thought process that I had, the sense that you could, you entered a poem as an interruption, as an interrupted thought. Writers like Kathleen Fraser and some of the women in, in the However magazine were, um, were, were putting marginalia in their poems. And I was very interested in things that seemed to want to crowd, especially as a woman is, or anybody is trying to represent their day, things are trying to crowd in. So for me, it was a natural force to sort of think of interruption and extra pauses and fragmentation as part of this. And I was just writing about this to a friend. I also feel like modernism, modernisms had had been following me along. And then I got, got divorced and I began to feel the crowding of my day. And so punctuation became a form of weather or something, inner weather. And so in Death Tractates, I started poems and in Bright Existence with dashes because it seemed that we were interrupting a thought to get to the poem. Yeah, so I think it started, you know, uh, mid to late 80s. For me to hear the punctuation, but I was very influenced by E.E. E. Cummings as a kid. I loved E.E. E. Cummings, and I think he's sort of underrated as a modernist. Um, I don't know if he's important. Was he important to you at all, or E.E. E. Cummings? Yeah. He was one of those poets that broke through, uh, you know, the consciousness of, of a kid who, you know, didn't have very much exposure to poetry. So we knew he, he was the guy who didn't have any capital letters. And so he and Ginsburg were among the two that kind of broke through this total non-poetry existence. And then when I interviewed Michael McClure in 1995 for the first time, which was very influential for my development, he said that Cummings... Uh, he started reciting, I'll, may I, said he, I'll squeal, said she. So I have respect for him, uh, you know, in, in that way. But I've not read a lot of his work. But obviously, I, I think your point has merit. Yeah, and, he's really great yeah, and important. Uh, I mean, I think his subject matter, I haven't ever talked much about him, but I think his subject matter is limited. I mean, he was, he was very great on the subjects a subject of love and human relationship and trying to um, represent that. He didn't have a broad range as a, as subject matter or as a thinker, as the way some poets do, like Oppen or somebody like that. But he was really magical on the page. And I remember him now a lot because when I was in seventh and eighth grade and first starting to look at poems and yeah, I thought, wow, this is cool. You know, so it marinated before the interview you started pulling out all your books water wood earth fire and now time uh, but you don't always use the word time you use the word minutes but tell us how minutes became a concern for you that you had to address in your poetry and especially this book well um so i'm working on my second tetralogy um there was earth air water fire and that took me about 20 years. Incidentally, the fire book was also a seasons book. So seasonal works with letters on fire. And then quite unbeknownst to myself, 
the the book that I wrote after that I had in mind wood because a friend had asked me about doing wood. She's Korean and she said, oh, you must do wood. So I did wood, but it also, the title came to me, Extra Hidden Life Among the Days. And I thought, oh, when I had finished that book, I thought, oh, I have two books about time also. So the overlap between the elements and the and the time books is that um, I had four books about time and now, I sorry, four books about elements and now I'll have four books about time. The minutes is third and I don't know if I live long enough, I'm going to finish references to centuries, I think. <laughs> so we have seasons, days, minutes, and centuries. And then I don't know if I'll have a third tetralogy. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll have to be very fast. <laughs> well, you may have more time to write near the near Maybe. the end, right? Maybe. <laughs> uh, if Mackie, Nate Mackie is any example, I mean, he puts out 1,100 uh, page right. tome in three volumes uh, near the end and yeah uh, you know you talk about time is is the planet running out of time and is the half rotten <laughs> orange on the cover of the book a metaphor for our planet i i think it looks like a planet don't you yes it looks like a floating planet um i i you know i thought at first of this as rot but now i sort of think mold is just such an exquisite form of life and it's so, un- unfortunately, I'm allergic to it. So I sneeze whenever I get around a rotting citrus. Um, and I'm very sensitive to it. When I walk in the house, I, I say to Bob, oh, you know, one of our one of our lemons has gone to mold. But um, now it doesn't, it feels like rot is a bit insulting because, you know, it's so beautiful and it's so form that Jeff Clark, this genius designer, really, you know, he took a photograph of, that I had done of a rotting orange and he turned it into this strange combo of photo and graphic. I'm not sure how he did it, but he did it. And um, and then of course he uh, matched the pages with the sage, the sage colored pages of the interruptions, which are also mold colored. <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't think the plant planet is rotting, no. And I don't think, <laughs> I think it's endlessly evolving. <laughs> it's definitely not rotting. <laughs> and we're getting ourselves dealt out of the card game at a rapid rate. I'm not worried about that, but I am worried about the other species. I'm worried about the the fact that we're so oblivious and unconscious that we're doing this to other species, which seems like a brutal massacre, unlike any that we've known. Um, And I feel um, both, I'm drawn to Jonathan Skinner's idea of the third landscapes and third spaces, that once we start calling things weeds and undesirable kinds of species, that we're naming them in a way that makes them subject to a certain kind of fate. So that said, I don't know how to put a good spin on the question exactly. Not necessary to put a good spin on it. The farmer David Mas- Masomoto from California, who wrote Epitaph for a Peach, 
um, because the kind of peaches he was growing were not shippable, so they couldn't grow them anymore, uh, economically uh, unfeasible. He said there's no such thing as weeds. He calls certain plants indigenous growth. Exactly. <laughs> that was from 25 years ago, and I still right. remember that. It's the, it's, the, it's the kind of plant that we don't particularly find use for at the moment. Right. Brenda, what do you do when you see someone running their car and looking at their phone, just letting the exhaust go? I've talked to some, I've made the turn the car off sign to others. And now it just happens so often. I just kind of grit my teeth, hold my nose and pass the large truck or car or whatever. What do you do in those cases? Gosh, that's a great question. I haven't really thought about it. I, you know, I have a poem about moaning at the gas pump. Um, when I was driving a fully gas engine car, I, I drive a hybrid now and I ha have only filled my tank uh, I guess six times in four years. So it's not as much of a feeling for me that um, of guilt and worry as I used to feel when I went to the gas pump. Um, I'm not sure, and I don't get this wrong in terms of your question. I don't, I'm not sure that the kinds of things that I experienced as um, micro scolding for my uh, my community is where it's at in terms of the changes that we have to make or in the arena of protest or in the arena of actual legislative action. For example, things that I do think do, do good, um, finding out which specific climate bills our state's legislatures are working on. And in California, that's always like five or six of them in the state legislature. I mean, something as significant as getting public buses or public vehicles to be EVs is a huge thing. And of course, not all state representatives would wanna vote for such a thing. So there's a lot of phone calling to be done. Getting people educated emerging poets, for one thing, who can really write well, but also just getting the larger public to know that these bills are being, are, are happening, and that, that our legislators really do listen to us when we phone about them. And they often, my legislator told me that she, this was back when I was doing the war protest, but she said, she often would get fewer than five phone calls on a major bill that she was supporting, fewer than five. And I was stunned about that. So, yeah. you know, people don't realize that. So I guess I don't, I'm not sure about turning off their engine. It just makes people mad. It's almost like um, throwing the, or telling people about um, not hitting their kids in public, you're horrified somebody you know slaps or yanks their kid and you know they're just gonna beat them worse when they get home you know if you yeah. scold them so um i don't know there's a it's moment in the book a... there's a moment in the book where you you go into a grocery store and you and you describe that moment of activism and uh, i think that's a that's a useful scene in terms of the question that i asked i'd like to talk to you about um, some of the poems in the book page 20 there is poem describing time to the unborn. This is pre-Dobbs, the decision that reversed Roe v. Wade. 
I'd love for you to read that poem if if you feel that it's appropriate and maybe tell us what inspired it. Sure. Poem describing time to the unborn. Today, the half moon presses an obvious ear to the sky. Some clouds cover the alarming part. It's going to be a hopeful day. You, listening from the other side, have not experienced sequences or fear. A worm crossing the battlefield, its mouth filled with silt, will slowly become a blue moth while grasses spring upward, escaping the doomed canopies. So the future grows at different rates. We think of you inching along, making matter, bone, and blood before meaning sets in. Meaning is made of time. Oh, winged history advances, the shoe is invented, the handheld phone. Your ancestors wove a fine gray cloth for strangers. Your parents have woven a name full of vowels to be opened when you appear. Most minutes aren't clear. Some will seem tangled when they are lacing your shoe, but minutes will be better when you are here. <laughs> Allen Ginsberg said, savor vowels, appreciate consonants. What <laughs> you, you mentioned that in, in the poem. Your, your, your parents have woven a name full of vowels to be opened when you appear. Uh, I love it in the context of that Ginsberg quote that vowels are something to be savored. Do you savor vowels? Oh, I savor letters and words and repeat them and my little grandson, who was is one of the one of the subjects of this poem. This is about two babies that were in utero when I was writing the poem. He, the little grandson Elliot, whose name has a lot of vowels, is a person who sings to himself and changes the words of the song as he's trying to get get himself to sleep, which is a man after my own heart, even though he's two and a half, but. Anyway, I, I really love sort of the idea of time being experienced by these different creatures, you know, the baby in utero having a sense of time that is so mystical and unknowable to us. Um, and then, of course, a baby will also have a sense of time that's mystical and unknowable. And gradually, this sense of time will be imposed upon the baby, the human baby. Um, but also the worm, the idea that a worm has a sense of time or a moth has a sense of time that's opening really suddenly and ancestors are in eternity and they have a sense of time that's eternal. I don't know, it just seemed like a delicious idea to write about having these different senses of time that were simultaneous. You know how there's sort of BS mysticism, and I, I don't really like BS mysticism, but there's, there's a way in which thinking about simultaneity of any creatures experiencing time, you have to be like a momentary mystic to be with those, those simultaneous creatures. So I don't know, does that, does that help? Fantastic, that? There's, there's one other phrase in there the doomed canopies, uh, you know, one could read it as tree canopies that won't survive climate breakage. 
so that's a, that's a thought that comes to me in knowing a little bit about you. There, but there is so much science in the book. Can you talk to us about your connection to and interest in science? Yeah, and I think we, we've talked about this in the past that I, I started with Ca Cascadia, well, really before Cascadia, thinking that I could both um, love and abuse science at the same time. <laughs> um, and eco, same with natural history and, and ecological. How are you abusing science, Brenda? I mean, come on. I'm abusing science sometimes by, by uh, stretching, you know, asking the irrational to coexist with the so-called rational or the provable or units of measurement that are, you know, what's what scientists say, you know, is it, can you do an experiment and know that the experiment is going to come out a specific way? And after you've done the experiment a whole bunch, then you know it's going to come out a particular way. Um, I have no way of saying that my that the spirit world is watching us from the hills, and yet I believe it as truly as I believe that I think everybody should stop at red lights because that's what we've agreed on, and that my gut bacteria have a great deal to do with how I'm feeling in a day, and that oranges have mold and that mold really exists and you know, I just think all of these things, the provable and the unprovable are so interconnected and that it's important to keep our sense of rationality very balanced with our sense of doubt and the unproven and the magical and the irrational. Um, so I love reading natural history. I love thinking about, wow. I took my walk this morning and I, I love wood rats and there are a lot of wood rats in my poems. I think there's a bunch of wood rats. Wood rats and, and nut hatches. And nut hatches, a That's ton right. of them. I love wood rat nests because they're like big, messy things, but they're they're like huge nests and the little tiny creature lives under them. And nut hatches are just so fast and smart and they're, they fly by so fast that they leave their stripes, I think. But yeah, I just was walking this morning and looking over at the wood rat's nest and thinking like, oh, what a miracle. It's, it's over there. It's having its life and it's just so snuggly in its nest and it doesn't need Brenda. <laughs> to go back to the science, didn't Heisenberg give us permission to be uncertain about things? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and what is it? Zeno's principle, the closer we approach it, the less we know about, about this, about the zero. Um, right. So there's, there's a way in which we, we have to be in the time of quantum mechanics, we have to be able to postulate and also be uncertain, which doesn't mean it facts don't exist. And we've, but facts are kind of locally agreed upon objects in that way right now yeah. just like we all agree that the world's going to be a better place if we stop at red lights but it doesn't mean that we see color the same as all creatures or that the dead can't see i mean those that's my belief amen page 23 has the poem <laughs> the times we find ourselves in what do you think about reading that one Okay, 
Yes. So is it okay to read um, the S word? Absolutely. You can read oh. any word you want. Okay. The times we find ourselves in. Laws were not working, so we went outside. After the shootings, the latest shootings. Mountain Creek full of summer runoff. Two centuries after Whitman's birth. The bullshit Congress not in session. That is so not respectful, Brenda. Aspen and Madia Roots. Veritable Congresses. Ridged, halted, radials. Light dragged the minutes down. Couldn't not think of the shooter's mother. Couldn't not think of dead children's hair. Couldn't not think of the gun at the gun show. But actually, Walt, we did not suffer. We were not there. The problem with walking outdoors in America, besides some use may be shot at any time, so little holds the ground together. It's very crumbly right now. Mountain mosses hold it lengthwise and clockwise. Colors, albeit stressed as we are. Saw reddish ones, granitic, apex and dry shoot. And over them, extremely flat, fluttering, migrating tortoise shells, ovate, vacant spots, resisting their flight, spoke of great beings not listed in the guidebook. Their making might go on somehow. A law of misty, rootless process, a kind of light that comes from below. So I guess, yeah, that's an example of a poem in which I'm trying to put, um, you know, factual things from my my naturalist guide, um, Bob and I do a lot of hiking. This was written right after a hike in the Sierra and we were we were just trying to trudge along. I was thinking it was an extraordinarily beautiful hike that we hadn't done before. And I was trying to think about, you know, a school shooting and think about the shooters, you know, the places that you don't want to go, but you can't help but go like, the shooter's mother and the distress that the shooters, that the victims, mothers and fathers, but also the shooter's mother must be going through and um, that you that you can't get rid of the feeling of being in the midst of it, even if you're out in this astonishing or shatteringly beautiful place. Mm. Um, and you're talking to yourself again in the poem. Yeah. There's a, a, that is not respectful, Brenda, is what you say. You've got Brenda one speaking to Brenda two, and you write elsewhere about many different selves. Can you elaborate on the notion of multiple selves and how you use it in your work? Uh, yeah, well, just the, the notion that we're always having these, first of all, this, the sense of a sort of dominant eye that has been something I've been sort of interrogating for 30 or more years um, just because it's dialogic you know it's always dialogic in your head that you're having these conversations and that that the self is permeable and not a fortress not a a column the letter I which I stopped I stopped using you know the capital I in my poems because 
it didn't seem accurate for how this creature called I, Brenda, is experiencing herself or itself. So yeah, I, I think that the sense that it's always a conversation, an inner conversation, a dialogue, a dialogue with the non-human, a dialogue with the spiritual aspects, a dialogue with my future self or selves that I haven't met yet. And yet, I don't know how to say this, but I have a feeling that finding your voice is not the point <laughs> in, in poetry. You know what I mean? Like yes, how, I how when, when we were in workshop, it's like, I want to find my voice. And I go, no, you don't. You know, you want to, you want to lose it. You want to you lose your way. <laughs> Try to lose your way. George Bowring uh, says that uh, you're, you're listening to the language and, uh, you know, expressing, you know, the voice of the language, not necessarily your personal voice. So right, exactly. he says it much more eloquently than I do, but uh, that's what he was talking. You yourself are the, the, the reader uh, listening to a voice you've trained your ear to receive something to that. Effect. Yeah, exactly. And, and yet, you know, there is a sense, I mean, it took me a very long time and maybe 20 years of working on this, what I think of as a problem of subjectivity, because in the 80s language poetry discussions and, the, you know, the idea that lyric poets were too solipsistic and language is a pure thing, which is true, but I, I feel like there's an intimacy when we talk to ourselves in the poem, and we also want people, our beloved readers, to overhear this intimacy, and that's the point of writing poetry. So I would never discard the idea of lyric utterance because lyric utterance is, is an intimate overhearing of, of a conversation that sometimes is very specific to a Brenda's autobiography and sometimes has to do with like feeling I'm as much a the worm as the worm is, you know, in some way. So yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah, makes total sense. You know, you talk about intimacy. How about living through a pandemic? And here the poet is uh, keeping a score of COVID deaths as the book goes on later on in the book further from the part we've been talking about i think we got up to page 23 so far <laughs> but but you start doing that you start tracking the death toll as the book goes along what made yeah. you do, what made you do that i mean is is it sort of like you're finding your place in time by noting that there were four million dead in the world or whatever as you were writing this poem yeah you're nodding your head yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I feel that's, yeah, thank you for noticing that because the numbers became very important, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic, that, that series of poems, which I think is, you know, maybe the most abstract and maybe the most lyrical pieces in the book, but they, um, they're the fifth section, it was begun in relation to studying literature of the apocalypse. And I was thinking about the book of Revelation and the end of time and, you know, that feeling that we all had at the beginning of the pandemic that like, what is our future? Or do we have a future? And so writing in those, those times inside, often in my garden or inside, I felt riveted by the daily reports of the numbers. So the first in each of these poems, there's a top number when I started the poem and then the bottom 
number when I finished the poem, and it's the number of global cases that were being reported and the dead also. And so I, I felt like uh, it was important to just keep that record as a just a little intimate moment. Yeah. What is witness? I don't know that we've talked about lineation before. We, we could pick any number of poems to illustrate or to get a sense of what the rhyme and reason is. I'm just passing activism and poetry, a brief report. And that's the one about the going to the grocery store. And it's, it's done so well. Um, but page 28 notes outside West County detention center. Mm. Um, that's a longer poem. That's two pages, but um, I just wanted to ask you about lineation. Um, sure. Yeah. And, 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 you know, everybody, well, not everybody has a rhyme and reason about it. Some people just write couplets and call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. I, um, I always have a secret idea of form in all of my poems, even the wildly free verse uh, open page ones. Uh, I was enchanted by the sixes in this book, this book has largely uh, stanzas of six lines. Um, the the one um, for, for the children, for the unborn children had six words per line, of course, and there are lots of poems with 24 lines. This does not, I wasn't counting words per line in this poem, uh, but often I'm counting words per line just because I, I like counting like the count in Sesame Street. And um, this, it, I think the reason I do that, just like with the question you just asked about numbers, is it gives perhaps a, a false sense of control, or it gives a sense of boundary that, that my often out of control imagination will push up against. So if I tell, it's a form of procedural poetry, like a constraint. If I tell myself, oh, I'm going to aim for a six-line stanza, but as you see in this poem, uh, there are several stanzas with, you know, there's five-line stanza where I couldn't make it work, but most of them are six-line stanzas. This is one of the mean poems in the book, Paul. It's mean, and it was written in deep anger. I don't know if that comes through. Does that come through? <laughs> you know... When there's anger coming from you, it it works. It does because we know that you're such a compassionate person, or at least my feeling when I read it is that you're such a compassionate person, and that we're all entitled to anger. And uh, you know, the the next question I was going to ask was about political poetry, and that gets to the anger aspect: is the anger out of control? Is it rhetorical? These kinds of things take away the poetry out of the work but yours never has that because there's so many inventive things that are going on that um you know it's it's so rich with surprise mind it's it's stunning to me the degree of surprise mind that you get into it maybe that's because i was a journalist and a radio guy and come to it from a very linear point of view and have to really work hard at it it seems to come very naturally to you so it never seems to uh, go into that uh, rhetorical mode. And I think that's the dividing line. So uh, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't worry about it. 
Well, if you're you. asking me for my advice, I wouldn't worry about it. I think, I think you've it's got it figured late. out pretty well. It's too late. Yeah. It's too late in this book. But I will say, I mean, I, lo I love what you just said. I find it very hard to not completely lose control most of the time, most of the day. You know, you're just barely trying to get through and not in a miserable way, but just there's so much input and it's very hard for me to keep the wild things out of the of the mind that can start you know running it so when you're drafting a poem it is one way of sort of keeping the uh, zoo animals uh, in their cage for a little bit and so this six line the six line device in this poem but I wanted to say mean things about the sheriff. And I was trying to not say terribly mean things about the sheriff, although there's a pun on his name in this poem. Um, and I was very angry at the fact that this detention center and Bob and I were protesting at the detention center, you know, once a month for a while. And we would just go and it was a vigil and um, we would just go there and stand and the sheriff was, you know, and it is one of the things that's happening in this country is that these detention centers are money makers. They're money makers and, um, and rounding people up to get, you know, a per capita count at night, you know, uh, how many, how many people are in those beds? They get paid. They were getting paid $91 per person. Uh, and it, it, it's it's stunningly, it's agonizing for me to think of that. So anyway, we would uh, stand outside there and, you know, a bunch of people were protesting there together, but we were coming from the outside. Uh, it's, it's in a part of town where that's um, very, as my poem indicates, it's not you know not nice Berkeley uh, it's it's a different part of town so I mean the the irony and terrible irony of this of this poem is that you know I was going to send it to this sheriff and say look I've named you so get rid of the, get rid of your detention center and and before this book came out the sheriff had actually moved these uh, detainees to a different facility, I think, because he didn't want people protesting at his prison anymore. But um, I don't know. We we started by talking about the line. I this is this is a very out of control line. There's some very long lines, some very short lines. There's lines that end begin with uh, at signs and end with ampersands. And I don't know if this is true of your poetry, but at a certain Point, you just sort of want to keep yourself interested and so you devise new forms or new make new strategies to keep yourself lively in a poem so you won't be oh I've done that before I know how to do that one <laughs> well each so. each poem has its own form and and we at the beginning of our friendship the Levertov was there at the very beginning I think you did a talk at open books on her and um, she had the famous 
um, friendly amendment to Creeley's dictum quoted in projective verse, where she said form is never more than a revelation of content. And I think that's clearly, it seems to me, how you operate on this. And so hearing that you uh, structure the stanzas in a specific number of lines was something that hadn't occurred to me and is good information to get a sense of what makes you tick. So yes, each poem has its own form and it's discovered in the same moment that each syllable is, in the same way that each syllable exactly. is. Exactly. Yes, thank you for saying that so clearly. And also that keeping yourself lively, like if in this poem, I was working with the six-line stanza, but also with how can I be as erratic as possible? Because the lines are erratic. Like there's some very short, the refineries, um, and then some lines are very long and leisurely and very allow the narrative to kind of go forward. But some lines are just choking on themselves and choking on their information. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't know what you mean, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, like where it can circle till he apologizes. Like the... the <laughs> The sheriff is not going to apologize. Alan, you're not going to yeah. say it's in it's in the poem. I, yeah, I, I looked at him. Oh, Alan, Alan, yeah, Alan Gilbert. I I was we I was going back and forth. No, Alan, Alan is um, my friend. Oh, um, I was addressing. Yeah, as I told Alan, it's not the protests. It's not the protests are useless. Is that some usefulness is too American? We were. I was going back and forth with my friend Alan Gilbert about about usefulness and Americanness and how, in some way, we we want to be less useful as a form of protest. <laughs> Um, less useful to the capitalist uh, industrialist yeah, project. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the monkey, the monkey wrench game. Yes, I, I get yeah, it. Exactly. But but now I'm now I'm crazy, racking my brain to try and solve the riddle of the name of the share. Maybe you oh. should read the poem and 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 it'll 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 come. I'll I'll text you later. Okay, fair I'll enough. I'll tell you, and you can you can actually you can actually look up the 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 sheriff and you'll find it. Um, you'll, you'll, I'll, and I'll tell you, and you can slip the name to your students. Brenda puts you right up there with worms in her new book, <laughs> which, yeah, you know, yeah. if anyone knew you, that would be a compliment, <laughs> but you probably wouldn't right. take it as such, nor no. would your typical scientist. <laughs> no, this one, this one's too long to read, don't you think? Well, okay. Now we've talked yeah. enough, we've talked enough about it that we get some sense of it. And for those who want to go back to it, it's page 28 and 29 notes outside West County Detention Center, but that's some good information on that. You know, one of the, one of the questions is it's so hard in this day and age to allow oneself to be vulnerable. And yet you have it there as well as any poet I've ever read, putting yourself out there, to scolding yourself in the poems, other techniques, really allowing a, an authentic voice to come through and a vulnerable voice. And, you know, with all this virtue signaling and mobbing and, you know, one tweet and you lose your job or whatever, um, it's hard to be vulnerable in this time. It's hard to be open. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. I feel like I've still got such a long way to go to be a, an ethical person. Um, I have, <laughs> I can't, I can't show you because it's not here, but 
I posted it on Facebook. Anybody can find it on Facebook. You can find it. I posted it today on Facebook. This morning, instead of working on my poem, I made myself a resentment box. You'll see it on Facebook. But anyway, it's uh, it's a box. Are, are you searching for it? I am not can... only searching for it, Brenda. Do you see it? But I am screen sharing it. <laughs> <laughs> you like that, don't you? Isn't that something? <laughs> For some reason, I thought, get a screen grab of that. Yeah. There's your resentment well, box. There it is. Yeah, my resentment box. Um, I thought, I'm gonna, instead of working on my poem today, I'm going to make myself a resentment <laughs> box for next year. And I'm going to put a resentment every day. And uh, and then at the end of the year, I'm going to burn it. And so, so far, a lot of people have responded on my on my resentment box and somebody said that it's this is an idea whose time has come <laughs> and <laughs> a few more letters on fire is what you're saying <laughs> but um i guess i think just when it comes to vulnerability that how can i say this it's it sounds like another form of virtue signaling but it's but I mean it actually as the deepest truth that I think I can say, which is that most people can access the truth if it's told with a pure heart, you know? And I think that poets are always working on, and I, I think this is true of even poets that I'm angry at or feel resentful toward or don't feel love toward in immediate ways, but try to understand their motives that most poets are really trying to speak with a pure heart and that that's because what draws us to poetry is so deep and so utterly important from our souls like we're really trying to get at that truth even with complex or abstract structures we're trying to get at some place in in reality that can't be told any other way and so vulnerability is built into maybe poetry from the very beginning um 10,000 years ago that we're really accessing it uh the way we should that it is a vulnerable art but let's see the not nice thing to say about it is that I think that when we are kind of first learning to be poets we learn these tropes that kind of keep us defended against the vulnerable. Do you know what I mean? Like we're, we just learn ways of writing that just seem like bullshit. They just seem like not true. They create barriers. Uh, they create a distance uh, and object, you know, objectivity. They create more space between the energy that one experiences and the telling of it in the poem. I think that's true. And it, so, you know, Honestly, when I first draft something, it's usually like a big, thick skin of the onion has to be peeled off. And it's not that I want to go for a kind of, you know, um, sound of, uh, I don't, I don't want to use the word confessional because I think it's played out. Uh, played out and never was accurate in the first place. But there's a kind of, um, we were talking earlier about, about subjectivity and there's certain kinds of autobiographical subjectivity that I'm not that interested in. 
where it's just the sort of narrow psychological Brenda part. Um, but I think the vulnerability of the open heart is what poets are trying to go for, right? Well, 104, page 104 is a, is a brilliant example of what you think poets ought to be going for. Dear emerging, pre-emerging, and post-emerging <laughs> poets, uh, epistle, prose, poem, piece that I would love if you read. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let me just say that the Lisa in the poem is Lisa Wells. She's a wonderful young writer. She writes beautiful, beautifully nonfiction forms as well as poetry. And she asked me for her blog on Harriet on a Poetry Foundation to um, give some tips to poets whose book had just come out. Dear emerging, pre-emerging, and post-emerging poets, Lisa has asked me to write you a note in case you are feeling discouraged about some public aspects of your poetry. It's hard not to be discouraged when there is so much ignorance helplessly displayed toward our art. It is not surprising that you feel overly sensitive when poetry or your poetry is ignored. Books of poetry are left off best of lists. They are rarely reviewed in major venues and when they are mentioned, it might be only for some perceived aspect of marketable content. Try to get past this. You are bringing your rare imagination and your love of language to the culture that needs those things. Poetry is not a specialized field. It has universal and eternal value. It has something most people start writing when they are children. It is something most people start writing when they are children. It is what humans read to each other at weddings and funerals. It takes us into vast spiritual adventures. It enacts original dreams. You do not need to dumb down your art or ignore a century of modernist practice to please what is sometimes called a larger audience. It is not a poet's job to simplify the mystery of existence or its lexicon. Is the life of the soul ever easy? When you feel downcast, keep in mind those who have encouraged you along the way and write for them. Imagine a stranger who might be reading one of your poems in secret someday. Try not to think about people who are writing facile things on the internet. Remember the radical ancestor poets who have gone before, especially those who received less acknowledgement than they should have, those whose genius was insufficiently recognized. Their poetry provides excellent company, as does the work of great living poets who offer inspiration and consolation. Read across aesthetic lines and identity groups, assembling a varied canon. When you feel paralyzed by the pointlessness of temporary fashion, or when dull or predictable work is lauded, try new things that will surprise you as you work for the joy of the process, remembering that all a writer needs are four true readers and one of them can be a tree. Never look at your phone when walking downstairs. Do not destroy your body by self-medicating under poetic stress. Just write new poems and read them to your community. Keep the ego in balance because the ego project is doomed to fail. If you don't receive the rewards you deserve from the outside world, and you very likely will not, try to celebrate the good work of others. Hold love in your heart. 
work for justice for humans and non-humans and keep writing. Love, Brenda. So beautiful. That's so fantastic. I love that very much. <laughs> Thank you. We're, um, we're about out of time. And so the last chapter of the book is dedicated to your husband, Robert Haas, who had a, a, a health, a major health issue. And um, you responded to that with a, a beautiful section with some really just really gorgeous uh, moments. You could talk about that. You could read one of the poems from that section or do whatever you like. I'd love to hear how you'd respond to that. Yes. Well, Bob had a sudden, uh, discovered he had a sudden, uh, suddenly discovered he had had a long time anomaly in his heart and uh and so had a major major uh surgery but, but before that i had started to work on poems uh, about our environmental crisis our our burning our burning west about the fact that we're often in a condition of of emergency uh emergency packing and unpacking to abandon our homes it's it's uh, been so shocking and so uh, sobering and so uh, life-changing. Um, and at the same time, being now in my 70s as a poet and feeling the vast gratitude of human love and connection, and those two things came together for me working on some poems for Bob for a few months and um, I finished them um, and read them to him before he had his surgery. And that was uh, something I'm glad that happened. And fortunately he's in great health now, but I, I feel like we don't tell each other enough how much love exists for us and how much we depend on each other's love for getting through the day even minimally. <laughs> uh, so that's where that section came from. And um, I, how, about, how about punctuation at the end of time? It's on page 157. That you think okay. that gets, you think that gets to it, what you're talking about, what we're talking yeah, about? Here? Absolutely. We'll read this one. And it's, um, I, I should say an one of the things about this this section is that there are words in the corner of the page that I was trying to rescue from obscurity. They came from my uh, botanical dictionary, and they're words that I love that I would run across and in, in reading about my botanical things. And so I put the word up there, and then I would use it in the poem. And, and the smart reader looked it up. And, yes. and boosted those numbers for the Dow Jones Industrial Average of <laughs> words. And so maybe they, they've staved off uh, execution for a few more years. That, that's right. Maybe maybe we'll save distal for for some for some readers besides this the uh, sci the scientists. Punctuation. Paul, thank you so much for being a great friend and an amazing poet and to your readers and and it just means means a lot to me that you that you um uh, have stuck with my 
weird, my strange poetry. <laughs> Your poetry gets better and better, and it is such an honor, and it's humbling for me to be able to have this kind of access to the way you work. It's it's really one of life life's great joys, and it shows people that I have the best job in the world. Oh, thank you so much. Well, this is this is punctuation at the end of time. Distal is my little muse there. You will love each other till the end of time. Totally a cliche, but seems like time might have more than one end. Knob-like structures on butterfly feelers. Butterflies have them. Maws don't. Rapulcera, clubbed horn. Sort of micro clocks telling monarchs when to migrate and so on. Twin apostrophes like four. One on the distal side toward eternity, one toward human life. Sometimes the end of time is in the middle, like as Lynn's essay against closure indicates. Also noticed, noted is how finality in some poems is scattered to make nanoseconds, as when the light strikes one of two nothings on Biramus branches of the righteous oak. If you loved a person well, it lasted till the end of time after which it continued. May it continue, Brenda Hillen. Thank you so much for your time and for your work and for your being and uh, continued success. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'll, I'll see you sometime. <laughs> Bye. In a few minutes before later. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, the sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Org.